Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 19. The sacrifice of Isaac. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took his hand, the fire, and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked and behold him, behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from the heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to, to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. The word of the Lord. All right, everybody. I kind of feel like this deserves a family chat. Anytime you have a global pandemic, a family chat is in order. That's kind of one of my rules to live by. So um, sorry to a little bit of the hassle getting going here this morning. We had, we came early this morning to get this all sorted out. We had that live stream going for two hours straight. Turns out you can't hit 
record to an SD card at the same time you're live streaming, which we discovered at 1045. So it took us a little bit of time to recover all that and get back uh, going again. But thank you for your patience. All of this is being recorded. So if you missed a bit at the beginning because you were scrambling to get your email or whatever, uh, we'll have it all uh, online at some point. So um, one of the things that uh, a number of my pastor friends and I will say, how's ministry going? We'll say things like, oh, ministry is great. You know, ministry would be great if it wasn't for all the people. <laughs> well, today it's like a day come true for me because I have ministry with no people. And uh, in any case, uh, it actually, we're missing you guys quite a bit here this morning. It's not uh, the same doing church virtually uh, and remotely, uh, but grateful uh, for all of you. I know I've uh, heard from a number of you that you're getting together with, like as a family, you're gathering together or perhaps you're gathering together with other families or as small groups, you're getting together. Some of you are watching by yourselves um, at home, you know, but whatever the case, thank you uh, for joining us and being part uh, of this uh, morning with us. The situation, of course, is rapidly evolving. If you are watching the news, uh, you'll know that uh, even the recommendations from the government authorities are coming out uh, differently, even almost even hour by hour, it seems like. Um, but I know that one of the main questions that I think all of us have as a congregation is, are we going to meet again? Like, when are we going to meet again? What's the plan for meeting again? And I would just say that virtual meetings, I'll say this at the front end, virtual meetings are not a substitute for real life worship. I know it's kind of trendy nowadays for everybody to be streaming church, even when there's not a global pandemic. Uh, but regardless of whether or not um, one is accustomed to streaming or not accustomed to streaming, streaming is not a substitute for the real presence of the body gathered together in corporate worship. We're a tangible body. We are the, we are the tangible body of Christ to each other. And right? so I experience Christ through you. You experience Christ through me. We experience Christ through each other. And so it's it's a loss for us to not be able to come together bodily in real time and real presence together. And there's a lot of theological commitments that are wrapped up in that. And I could say more, it could be a whole sermon just about the theology of presence being together. But in Colossians 2.5, the apostle Paul is writing to the church at Colossae. And he says this, he says, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So we are together in spirit. And Paul, when he's making that comment, he's not saying that my spirit, Paul, is so potent that it goes out to your spirit, which is also so potent. That's not his point. His point is Paul, in his spirit, is connected to Christ, and the believers at Colossae in their spirits are connected to Christ. And therefore, since they're all connected to Christ, they are together in spirit. And so we have a spirit, the Holy Spirit, that bonds us all together, that brings us together and gives us our closeness and our intimacy that even transcends geographical boundaries. It transcends the bodily presence of each other. So that's true every moment, every Sunday, throughout the week, but it's especially true now, and it's important to remind ourselves of this, that our bodily presence is important, but our spiritual connection can withstand the break of our bodily connection. Well, in lieu of the congregational meeting that's going to take place tonight, our elders are going to be meeting, and we are going to be trying to figure out where to go from here prayerfully 
uh, discussing our plan going forward. And so I encourage, uh, encourage you to be praying for us today, four o'clock, however long it takes for us to meet. You might not have all the answers coming out of it, again, because uh, the situation is changing rapidly, but uh, we're going to be, be looking for an email in the next day or so uh, that will give some uh, some some plans for the at least the coming weeks. And we'll have to kind of take it bit by bit. Keep an eye on your email because our email, your email is going to be the primary way we're going to be communicating uh, with you throughout this time. We'll have links to things on our website and you'll find out information there. So just be mindful of paying attention to your email uh, in the days to come. Also, let us know if you're aware of folks in our congregation who don't have access to email or the internet. We want to figure out how to stay in touch with them as well. And so if, if you know, oh, so-and-so and so-and-so doesn't have, uh, doesn't have a computer, doesn't have the internet, please let us know that. Um, and whatever you can do in their life to make sure that they stay connected um, and passing information on to them, uh, encourage you to do that. But do let us know. You can just uh, reach out uh, to Pastor Johnny or myself or really any of the staff, letting us know who in our congregation could use some extra care. I want to uh, close out uh, the family chat with this. I got an email today. Every Sunday, I get an email from my clothing company, my, my favorite clothing company. And uh, so I got an email today from them, and they spoke to the pandemic. The president of the company wrote an email addressing the pandemic. And I and I read it, and it was actually very good, and uh, I appreciated the sentiment of it and behind it. Uh, but then he closed with this. He said, he said uh, I'm wearing uh, the first T-shirt that we ever produced. This is a special T-shirt to me. I wore it uh, at the births of my uh, two children, and it's a, a reminder to me of hope for days to come. And he said, then, I hope that you too have something meaningful in your life that gives you hope in this season. And I thought to myself, dear God, I hope that our congregants have more than t-shirts to get them through this pandemic. Because we do have more than t-shirts to get through this pandemic and all the troubles that may lay ahead for us in the future. We have the righteousness of Christ given to us. And we have the hope that his purposes and his plans and the things that he's wanting to accomplish are with us. And we have that righteousness with us. The passage, a passage that Pastor John uh, sent to us earlier in the week. I want to uh, close with this before we jump into our sermon. You might remember in Acts, it's kind of chronicles the life of the church. And in Acts chapter seven, we encounter the very first persecution against the Christians. And Stephen, who's one of the early leaders of the church, is martyred and killed. Tragic story. And the Apostle Paul, who we looked at last week, was behind this execution. And so we read then in verse 8, immediately following this account of, P of Stephen being killed, says this, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were scattered all throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering those and entering house after house, and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. But now listen, listen to this. Verse four. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And so as this persecution broke out in the church and it took this close-knit community, this fledgling community there in Jerusalem, and it broke them up and scattered them all throughout the regions. 
They went out taking the hope and the message of the gospel with them as they went. So we don't know what's in store for us. God has scattered us and we've been scattered into homes and into our neighborhoods and the ways that we can connect with each other. But we do know that this isn't the first time the church has been scattered. And secondly, we know that God goes with us in this and that he is asking us to take the gospel with us into all the places that he's scattering us. So let's be scattered expectantly and be scattered in hope that he is working his purposes for our good. All right, let me pray. And then we're gonna jump into our sermon here in Genesis uh, chapter 22. Father, thank you for uh, your grace in our lives that gives us hope in the midst of uh, the difficult circumstances that we're in. And many of us are in difficult circumstances because of things that are going on in our life quite independent of this global pandemic. And we had problems last week and we have problems this week and it's not related to any viruses. It's just related to the difficulties of our life. And then many of us, Lord, our lives are very disrupted by all that's going on right now globally and in our community. God, we pray that you would remind us of your faithfulness to us, remind us of your love for us, remind us how you care for us, help us to look to you in all things expectantly and in faith that you are working your purposes for good in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. And God, we pray that you would be with us as we look at your word here and the story of Abraham and his faith and how his faith carried him through a great and difficult trial and test. And we pray that that would be the same for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we are on the third Sunday of Lent. Someone uh, commented to me referring to, uh, referring to today as Coronavirus Sunday. And I don't know if that's a liturgical date in the calendar going forward, but it's the third Sunday of Lent, which reminds us the season of Lent reminds us of our dependency upon God. And certainly today we are reminded of our dependency upon God. We're working through this season of Lent. We've really been working through the whole year through um, our sermon series, All Things New, the story of the Bible and the healing of the world. And in the last number of weeks, we've been in, in the the uh, section of our story that we've called the patriarchs or the fathers of the faith. And we've been looking at the story of Abraham. Abraham is the patriarch. Abraham, of course, has Isaac and Jacob. Jacob has his 12 sons and the 12 sons. And that's kind of the patriarchs together. But Abraham really is the patriarch of the faith because he was such an exemplar of faith. And so we want to look today at Abraham's example, as we have been the last number of weeks, as the true exemplar of faith, which is so central to the Christian life. This is why the whole Christian tradition, even the Jewish tradition before us, has looked back to Abraham as the exemplar of faith. So we're going to continue on in the story of Abraham. And today in Abraham's narrative, we are going to reach the climactic moment of Abraham's life of faith the moment when he is asked to offer up Isaac upon the altar. So last we saw Abraham was Genesis 15, and now we're in Genesis 22. And a few things happen in the meantime between Genesis 15 and Genesis 22. So I want to give, as we get going this morning, I want to give a brief reminder 
about Abraham's plight. We've been focusing on this the last uh, number of weeks, but a brief reminder about Abraham's plight. And then I want to give a quick summary of what's happened between Genesis 15 and Genesis 22. All right. So Abraham's plight, and then a quick summary, and then we're going to get into Genesis uh, 22. In the last few sermons, we've noted the problem of Abraham not having an heir. If there was one crisis in Abraham's life, it's the fact that he was childless. He did not have an heir. And this problem comes into view again in Genesis 22. And so I want to make sure that we all understand the significance of not having an heir. Folks in Abraham's day had a very sketchy knowledge of the afterlife. I mentioned this a few uh, weeks ago in one of the sermons. But folks didn't have all the revelation that you and I have today, having lived on this side of the uh, exilic, uh, uh, on this side of the exilic uh, conquest, and then into the teachings of the apostles, and then the revelation that Christ gave. Folks didn't have all that revelation about heaven and hell, the resurrection, the judgment. Abraham didn't know any of that. So as far as Abraham and folks in his day knew, people lived their lives and they just went into the grave and it got pretty murky after that. It was That was basically what they understood. There was some sense that maybe there was some shadowy existence in the netherworld but it was all pretty vague and it, and that really wasn't what you placed your hope in your hope was in living in this present life and of course not everyone lived forever in abraham's day so how would you have some cons- some sense of living beyond your own death that was through your heir so you would then live on kind of into the future through the life of your descendants in abraham's day because you lived on through your posterity, that was the closest thing that they had, probably the closest concept they had to eternal life. In fact, the way that God would curse wicked kings or prophets or priests would be to cut off their line entirely, to cut off all of their descendants. And this is why uh, having offspring and barrenness are such big deals in the Old Testament narrative. When you're reading through the Old Testament and you encounter someone who's barren, you have to understand that's a significant thing from the worldview that they are coming from. So Abraham, not having an heir, was a huge problem. He was cut off from the land of the living. It was essentially to be a dead man walking. But then in the midst of this dilemma, this crisis, God appears to Abraham and promises him a descendant, promises him a blessing. And Abraham believed God, and that has been the focus of our sermon the last couple of weeks. Now, Abraham's wife, Sarah, who we haven't talked uh, really much about at all, didn't quite have the same degree of faith and confidence that Abraham did. Sarah's in the same situation that Abraham is in. Sarah is barren. She has no offspring. She too is in danger of being cut off. Her line will not go off into uh, the future as well. And so she keenly feels the same existential dilemma that Abraham is feeling. All right, so that's kind of a recap of Abraham's plight and Sarah's plight. And that sets up then the events that happened in chapters 16 through 21. When we get to chapter 16, we read that Sarah 
who is feeling this same plight that Abraham has been feeling, comes up with a plan to get herself an offspring. She knew that she couldn't produce a child. She had been barren her whole life. And so she uh, gave her maidservant Hagar to Abraham as a concubine to be a surrogate womb for Sarah's child. This was a practice that happened. It, it's, uh, was, it, it happened in, in uh, Abraham and Sarah's day. So this wasn't like Sarah came up with this idea uh, whole cloth. The plan was that when Hagar gave birth, the baby would be born on Sarah's knee and would be counted as Sarah's son. And this would be Sarah's offspring. That was the plan. And it, uh, it looked good on paper as all plans do. And yes, Hagar did give birth to a son whose name was Ishmael, but the whole thing did not really work out in the way that Sarah intended. Hagar started gloating over Sarah, like, look, I have had a baby and you haven't. Sarah becomes uh, intensely jealous. Really, there's no surprise here. I mean, the whole situation really is an episode of Dr. Phil just waiting to happen at this point. And eventually the Lord steps in and tells Abraham that Ishmael is not going to be the heir. Ishmael is not the answer. He commands Abraham to send Ishmael and Hagar away. Abraham protests a bit and he, perhaps cautiously, suggests to God that maybe Ishmael could be the heir. God had promised Abraham a descendant. Ishmael here could be the descendant. How about we just say that Ishmael is the descendant that you promised me through whom the blessing to the world will come. But God in chapter 17 says, no, Ishmael will not be Abraham's heir. God has other plans for Ishmael, and it's not to be the answer for Abraham's uh, heir. Instead, Abraham will produce a child through Sarah herself. The child should be called Isaac, that will be his name, and he shall be the one that will fulfill Abraham's promise from God. Now, this is a crazy promise, of course, because Sarah has been barren her whole life, and besides that, she's too old. She's past the childbearing years. But God works a miracle and at last, Isaac is born to Sarah through Abraham in chapter 21. What an amazing act of God. What a relief. The promise is actually going to come true. But then we get to chapter 22. We come to the very first words of chapter 22. And we read in verse 1, After these things, God tested Abraham. God enters into Abraham's life. He's been showing up in Abraham's life. He has been providing for Abraham. He's even provided the, the fulfillment of this son. He shows up in Abraham's life now, having done all of this provision and this promising, and he tests Abraham and tests his faith. And what a test it was. The Lord asks Abraham to take Isaac to the land of Moriah and to offer him there as a burnt offering. Now note here in verse two, that the Lord refers to Isaac as Abraham's only son. Take your son, your only son. He refers, Abraham, Isaac is referred to in chapter 22, three times as Abraham's only son. Now, when God asks Abraham to sacrifice his only son, he doesn't just mean 
your special son or the son you love the most, or we forgot about Ishmael. He's meaning your only legal heir. This child right here is your only legal heir. That's the one that I am asking you to sacrifice. So here's what Abraham knew at this point. First, he knew that without Isaac, he was dead in the water. Without an heir, without life, and without hope in the world. That was the plight that he had. Isaac was the solution to that plight. Without Isaac, he's right back into this dead man walking status. Second, he knew that God had promised him life through Isaac and that through Isaac, God had promised that to Abraham would come a blessing that would extend out into the whole world. Third, he knew or he had seen how Isaac had been miraculously born as a fulfillment of God's promise. And then finally, he knew that God was now asking him to sacrifice this promised son before the promise had reached its consummation. And I want us to feel the incongruity of this situation in all the ways that Abraham would have felt it. Imagine that you are in a shipwreck, you're out adrift with no boat in the middle of the ocean, your ship is just uh, uh, sunk and a rescue plane flies overhead and drops a small sailboat near you. I don't know why a rescue plane would find you and drop you a sailboat, but that is how it goes for this illustration. So the, the, so you've got this small sailboat, the boat contains food, water, compass, a little two-way radio. You crawl into the boat, you hoist the sail, you tune up the radio, and the person on the other end of the radio promises you that the sailboat will take you to safety. And they tell you that all you need to do is just point the compass and the sailboat towards the east, keep sailing, and you'll be all set. So off to the east you sail. But then just a couple of days later, still at open sea, still sailing to the east, the person on the radio tells you to scuttle the ship. Shows you that there's a cork in the bottom of the boat, asks you to pull it up and to sink the ship. And there you are in the middle of the open ocean. It just wouldn't make any sense. You would be like, you gave me this boat to save me, and now you're asking me to scuttle it. And then the person's voice comes back over the radio and says, you're just going to have to trust me. Now I ask you, in that situation, would you trust the voice over the radio? You've been given this deliverance, and now the person that's given it to you, before the deliverance has finished its work in your life, is asking you to sacrifice the deliverance. That's what this was like for Abraham. When God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, he was asking him to sacrifice his hope of life. This wasn't just a test about take something that you love that's important to you, that's very meaningful to you, and sacrifice. That's kind of how we would think of it. But, but it was that for Abraham, no doubt, but it was compounded by the fact that Isaac was how Abraham was brought back from the dead. Think about what this means. Isaac is Abraham's salvation, Abraham's righteousness, 
Abraham's life. Isaac is the miraculous provision of God, the means by which Abraham's life will continue past death into the future. In Old Testament terms, again, Isaac is the way that Abraham will live forever. So when God asks Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, he's asking Abraham to sacrifice his sole chance at life. Now catch this. So I think this is important. He's not just asking for Isaac's death. God is asking for Abraham's death too. This is a huge test. And it's here at this point that Abraham encounters the greatest test of his faith. The great test that we all must face. The promise of God and the command of God seem to be running contrary. They seem to be at odds with each other. No doubt it seemed to Abraham that following the command of God would undo the promise of God. It would wreck the promise of God. God had promised Abraham new life through a son, but now he was asking Abraham to sacrifice that new life prematurely before the life had blossomed into the fulfillment of all that God had promised. So how does Abraham respond? He responds in faith. He rises early, saddles his donkey, gathers together Isaac and his servants. Nobody tells, look what he tells the servants in verse five. He says, the boy and I will go and then we will return. You can already see the bit of Abraham's faith. He's expecting to bring Isaac back down off that mountain. Maybe he doesn't know how, but he's expecting somehow he's going to still hang on to Isaac, even as he follows through in God's command. Then he and Isaac walk up the mountain, leave the sermon, the servants behind. Isaac is carrying on his back the wood for the sacrifice. And along the way, Isaac asks, where is the lamb for the sacrifice? We've got the fire, we've got the wood, but where is the lamb? And then we see Abraham's faith even more explicit. Abraham says, God will provide the lamb. God will provide for himself a lamb. I don't know that at this point, Abraham was sure how the tension between God's promise and God's command was going to be resolved. But he knew that God knew, and that was sufficient for him. And Abraham followed God's command even while he held on to God's promise. And all of us as Christians will eventually find ourselves in Abraham's situation, caught in the tension between the promise of God and the commands of God. In fact, this is how the Christian life begins for each of us. Christ comes to us in the midst of our deadness, and he promises us that he will give us life, not just life, but abundant life, overflowing life. And so we believe, and so we receive. But then in the very next breath, Jesus calls us to take up our cross and follow him to death. 
Just like God with Abraham, Christ promises us life, and then he asks us to die. Obedience is easy enough on the sunny days, but to follow the path of obedience when the commands of God seem to undo the very promises that God has made to us, that takes great faith. I remember this was probably over a decade ago. I remember I was in a season of life where I I just felt this pressure from the Lord to do something. There was something he wanted me to do. And uh, I knew clearly what he wanted me to do. It was very explicit and plain and wasn't fuzzy. I knew what he wanted for me, but I was resisting it. And I was giving the reasons and excuses. And I was quoting scripture back to God as to why I shouldn't follow what he was telling me to do. And uh, there was about three weeks where it was just this unrelenting pressure from God. Every time I turned on the radio, whether it was a Christian station or a secular station, every time I read a book, whether it was the Bible or a different book, I could just feel the spirit of God saying, this is what I want from you. This is what I want from you. I remember having this moment where I said to God, listen, Lord, if I do this, it's just gonna, it's gonna wreck my life. It will wreck my life if I follow you on this. And I can still remember it almost as clear as Clear as day, it wasn't an audible voice, but it was as though God said to me, I'm not trying to wreck your life. I'm trying to save your life, and you need to trust me. I said, all right, all right. You know, this doesn't make any sense. But I think what you've got planned for me isn't actually going to bring a blessing. What you're asking me to do will not bless me, but you're clearly asking me to do it. So because I know you're asking me to do it, I'm just going to have to trust that you know somehow to figure this out. Sure enough, in following through into that pathway, which felt like death to me, to step into that space and to do that thing that God was asking of me, came out of that probably the, the greatest blessing of my life. So this morning, we are being called like Abraham to trust in the promise of God enough to follow through with the command of God, even when it seems like following the command of God will unmake the promise of God. So I ask you this morning, where in your life do you need the faith of Abraham? Where in your life do you need to believe the promise enough that you will follow through on the command even when it seems that the command runs contrary to the very thing that you believe God has promised you? Is God asking you this morning, perhaps maybe some of you right now, you are in that same spot that I was in over a decade ago. You feel the pressure from the Holy Spirit, the conviction of God pressing upon you. He's asking something of you. And you know exactly what he's asking of you. But he's asking something from you that you really, really, really don't want to do. Something that you are just certain that if you do it, it will ruin your life. It will rob you of blessing and joy and happiness. But you know he's asking you to do it. Clear as day, you know it and you're dragging your feet. Perhaps he's asking you to love someone that you really don't want to love. 
Perhaps he's asking you not only to turn the other cheek, to stop being negative towards that person, but he wants you to move towards them positively, proactively in love, to pray for that person and to bless them and to bring goodness to them. And you do not want to do it, but you know he's asking you to do it. Or perhaps it's the opposite. Perhaps Jesus is asking you to give up a relationship that you know is wrong, that you know you should not be hanging on to. But to give up that relationship feels like death to you because the relationship for you is life and how you conceive of it. Perhaps he's asking you this morning to walk away from a good job. Or perhaps, perhaps he's asking you to confess some secret sin that you have been hiding you're going to have to bring out into the light. And all of these things that he's asking of you feel like they are commands that will take you into the pathway of death. And I've got news for you this morning. Those commands will lead you into the pathway of death. That's what Jesus means when he says that we have to die to ourselves We have to give up our own sovereignty. We need to stop thinking that we know the way to blessing and happiness. And instead, we need to follow his way. The Bible in the book of Proverbs says that there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is death. But the reverse is also true. There is a way that seems like death to us but its end is life. The commands of God will often feel like they are unmaking us, that they are wrecking God's promises in our life because they run contrary to our innate sinful self. God has promised us a new life through Jesus, but the new life he's promised us is always found on the other side of death. We rise with Christ only after we have died with Christ. The cross always comes before the resurrection. That was true for Jesus. It's true for us. And it was true for Abraham. God asked Abraham to sacrifice his life there on the mountain. But then God provided a ram which the scriptures go on to say was figuratively like a sign of the resurrection. Hebrews chapter 11 picks up this story of Abraham and listen to how the author of Hebrews speaks of Abraham's moment on the mountain. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. He was going to do it. He was going to do it of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham believed the promise of God. He didn't understand exactly how it was all going to work out. Even if God had to raise Isaac from the dead, God had said that through Isaac would come the blessing of Abraham to the world. So somehow 
Isaac had to live to produce offspring. And if that meant God would raise him from the dead, then God would raise him from the dead, Abraham supposed. But he was willing to follow the obedience that God asked of him down into the cross of his own life, confident in a resurrection to follow. I close with this. The Christian tradition has long seen a picture of Jesus's sacrifice in the story of Isaac's near sacrifice. Abraham climbed the mountain and offered up his only son. And God too offered up his only son on the holy hill of Calvary. And just as it must have bewildered Abraham that God who had sent Isaac to give him new life would then ask for Isaac's death before Isaac had been able to give new life. So it must have bewildered the disciples who were in need of life and God sent Jesus to bring them new life. But then Jesus was killed before he had unleashed that life upon the world. But just like Abraham, Jesus believed that God was able to raise even the dead. And so he obeyed in faith, confident that God's promise would still come true. And it did. And what the people of God learned, the story of Abraham and then through the story of Jesus, was that our hope is found in Christ's death and resurrection. Through our faith in Jesus, we participate in his death and resurrection and find the new life that we long for. God always comes through in the end. Not always or often in the ways that we expect, not always in the ways that we would choose or prefer or desire, but he always comes through in the end. There may be any number of little crosses and resurrections in our lives before we get to the final great day of resurrection. But God knows what he's about. The resurrection of Jesus is the great object of our hope. And it is also the great reminder that God's promises are always true in our life. So whatever comes in your life in this week and in the weeks to come, as you follow obediently in the path that God is asking you to walk, let's hold fast to our faith that God is with us, that he is right now blessing us. And in that faith, in that confidence, let's hold fast to his commands. Amen. You all can say amen. And uh, let's pray that the Lord would guide us and direct us uh, in this, give us wisdom, but even more so than wisdom, let's ask that he would give us faith to trust him. Father, thank you that you've given us Jesus. We uh, confess that our ways of what we think should happen make sense to us and we can see our own paths to blessing. But then you come along and you ask things of us that just seem to run contrary to even the things that you've promised us. But God, help us to trust you. Help us to trust you enough that if you ask us to scuttle our ship, if you ask us to sacrifice our life, if you ask us to go to the cross, that you know what you're about and you will bring life out of the midst of that obedience. 
God, help us not to think we know better than you. Help us to trust you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.